Hello and welcome to A's for Alien podcast. My name is Patrice Johnson, a former child who was once afraid of the dark term podcast host that now speaks about aliens to strangers on the internet. Each week, or every other week if I'm being honest, we will navigate together the law surrounding aliens, UFOs, abductions, everything and anything else surrounding this community of believers and experiences that has captured my imagination and my heart for over 25 years. Thank you for spending time with me today. Let's get ready to dive right in. Today we're talking about grey aliens. Hi everyone and welcome to season two. And, you know, I'm putting this out there right now that I feel like this is the true first episode of A is for Alien podcast because I took some time away. I haven't really posted much this year. I've been really kind of intermittent with it, but I'm really happy with the direction that I think the podcast is going in now. And I feel like you guys are going to be really happy with it too, because I feel like it's now kind of closer to the version of it that I originally wanted to do, but I just, I just didn't know how, if that makes sense. So what I'm planning for this season is kind of like closer to my original kind of dream for it. You know, when I was conceptualizing the idea for the podcast, I thought to myself, like, I want it to be almost like a grassroots explanation, exploration of, you know, the basics of, ufology the basics of you know like what what is a gray alien what's the history behind it you know like an explanation for someone who didn't know anything about the subject didn't know anything about the topic that they could listen to and get a handle on it because you know it was born out of this idea that there's so much going on in this space right now which is confusing for people you know like we look at Uh, UAPs and we look at the Tic Tac UFO and, you know, all this kind of jargon and language that's being thrown out there that we're seeing in the mainstream media now. But, uh, you know, people kind of just brush it off, I guess, a little bit because unlike people like myself that have been interested in it for, you know, 25 years or however long, um, they don't realise kind of how important it is or what it means because there isn't that fundamental basic knowledge of the topic. So that's what I'm hoping to kind of do with this next season. And so this first episode of season two, I'm starting with G is for grey alien. Because let's face it, when it comes to an alien, if I said the word alien, That's the first thing that you probably think of because it is a real archetype of the genre now um, and has been probably for for the better part of the last century and this century. As you get more interested in it and as you do more research, there's obviously other players that come to the fore, but I feel like for somebody who is brand spanking new, this is the image of an alien that's most sampled in popular culture, in movies, in books, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So what is a grey alien? So what we refer to as the grey aliens are also sometimes called Zeta Reticulans or Roswell Greys or simply the Greys. 
they are frequent subjects of close encounters and alien abduction claims. However, as you'll learn as we're going through this series, the question, what is a grey alien, isn't really that kind of cut and dry because even within that classification, there are subclassifications. So for today's purpose, this will be maybe a part one of three for this season of my kind of expose of the greys. And for today's episode, we will be focusing on the most commonly referred to grey, which is the short greys. So this particular alien gets its name from the color of its skin, which is said to be grey and hairless. It's also described as being very short, so between three to four foot tall and very thin as well. Their eyes are large and black and they are almond shaped. There is varying reports whether or not like the black sclera that they have is actually some kind of like protection, like a UV protection thing, because I have seen them described as having eyes kind of similar to human eyes and that the black, the black eyes that we see are actually just like, I guess, sunglasses for the lack of a better word. The facial features are restricted to slits in the place of their nose and also a small mouth. Their fingers are unusually long and dexterous and sometimes are reported to only have four fingers on each hand. Their arms are quite long in proportion to their body and they don't appear to have genitals. This is a feature that people notice because in most accounts people think that they are naked whereas I have heard in other reports too that the actual color of their skin and what looks like skin is actually like a nanocloth which is supposed to appear like skin but isn't skin. In some cases where the greys are reported to have abducted people or interacted with people, their main mode of communication is through telepathy, so speaking through the mind. So within recent years, there's also been this differentiation with when it comes to greys that perhaps the way that we see and interact with what we would consider a grey alien isn't actually the entity that is, that's not how they look physically, but it's the way that a higher dimensional being can act and interact with lower density um, environments such as Earth. Probably in part two, I'll go into that a little bit deeper because it is reported that the great aliens that were um, captured after the Roswell crash were actually EBEs, which are, stands for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity, as opposed to you know, these kind of grey aliens that could potentially be more like an avatar. And so say a higher dimensional being can control one alien or more or none and that they can kind of zap in and out. Just kind of like how the metaverse is kind of, you know, purporting this world where you can have like an online persona and take over an avatar and create this person that lives in cyberspace. That's kind of what this, the new kind of way of thinking is that that's what these aliens could be is that they are technically more like a biological robot as opposed to a living, breathing creature themselves. It may even be possible to believe that there are a number of different alien species that utilize the grey alien vessel to interact with us here on Earth. You know, and that idea kind of makes more sense to me if we are to believe that these creatures have traversed time and space. Like if they were more like a robot, kind of mitigates the risk of sending, you know, a space, a spaceship full of living, breathing entities. 
into the unknown. You know, if the mission fails, you've just lost a couple of robots as opposed to what you can imagine would only be like maybe the their planet, their world's greatest minds, the people that they entrust to, you know, interact with other life forms. So I guess if you can just plug into an entity, plug your consciousness into a robot, I mean, it makes more sense, doesn't it? So sometimes the great aliens get called Zeta Reticulans because they are said to herald from the Zeta Reticular I can't say that word, Zeta Reticuli star system, which is a wide binary star system in the southern constellation of Reticulum. From the southern hemisphere, so where I live in Australia, the pair can be seen with the naked eye as a double star in very dark skies. Based on parallax measurements, the system is located at a distance of around about 39.3 light years. So if you don't know how light years work, basically if human beings were able to travel at the speed of light, it would take 39 years to get there. But at the time of this recording in 2022, that's a physical impossibility. So assuming that we were able to use the technology that we have right now, it would take us approximately 685,000 years to get to that particular binary star system. So an interesting fact about Zeta Reticuli is that there is no known extrasolar planets in the star system. In 2007, the Spitzer Space Telescope, that's a tongue twister, try saying that three times, the Spitzer Space Telescope, Spitzer Space Telescope, the Spitzer Space Telescope was used to find an apparent infrared excess. The radiation was attributed to an emission of a debris disk. So a debris disk is a circumstellar disk of dust and debris in orbit around a star. This was theorized to be orbiting the host star at a distance of 4.3 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is roughly the distance it takes to get from Earth to the Sun and is equal to 150 million kilometers or 8.3 light minutes. So in 2010, the Herschel Space Observatory, a telescope with a comparatively superior spatial resolution than the Spitzer Space Telescope, was able to determine that the infrared access was coming from a two-lobe structure that looked like a debris disk seen on edge. However, observations with ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, from October and November 2017, revealed that the structure observed by Herschel showed no common proper motion with Zeta Reticuli. In these observations, no significant flux was detected, showing that the alleged debris disk was in fact not real, but rather a case of background confusion. So what you can garner from that is, is that accepted science doesn't believe that there is a planet even in the Zeta Reticuli star system. So I don't know. So for today's purposes, we will run with the fact um, and the idea that they are coming from the Zeta Reticuli star system, which, like we just established before, is 685,000 light years away. And so you might be thinking to yourself, like, how do they actually get here? And, you know, I feel like that's the argument that a lot of skeptics use that, you know, it's it's kind of hard to get on board with the fact that these highly advanced entities, UFOs, UFOs, aliens um, are traveling here physically in nuts and bolts aircraft that they've traversed like thousands of kilometers in space just to get here to talk to us, which would be like similar to us kind of like talking to an ant colony or, you know, whatever. So despite having claims that they're able to speak via telepathy and whatnot and are perhaps a kind of higher dimensional entity that is using these avatar bodies to communicate with us in a, a lower density, the accepted 
uh, fact about these creatures, how they get around, is in a physical spaceship. And it is reported that the Roswell crash, which happened in 1947, was an actual fact. Zeta, Reticule and Grace. You're probably familiar with the character Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar claimed that he was hired in the late 1980s to reverse engineer extraterrestrial technology. He claims that a lot of this secret work was done at a site called S4, a subsidiary installation allegedly located several kilometers away from the United States Air Force facility that was commonly known as Area 51. During his time working at S4, he says that it was his job to reverse engineer one of nine flying saucers. He says that one of the flying saucers that he worked on, which he coined the sports model, was manufactured out of a metallic substance that was similar in appearance and touch to liquid titanium. So Bob Lazar said that the propulsion system of these spacecrafts on the vehicles that he studied ran on an antimatter reactor. Bob Lazar said that this antimatter reactor was fueled by the chemical element E-115, which at the time hadn't yet been created. It was first synthesized in 2003 and later named Miscovium. He said that the propulsion system relied on a stable isotope of element 115, which allegedly generates a gravity wave that allowed the vehicle to fly and evade visual detection by bending light around it. So at this point, no stable isotopes of Miscovium have yet been synthesized or have proven to be extremely radioactive, decaying in mere milliseconds. Lazar said when the craft was dismantled, the reactor he studied was topped by a sphere or a semi-sphere that emitted a force field capable of repulsing human flesh. So I guess like when you tried to touch it, you couldn't touch it. He explained that the craft that he examined was split into two main levels, that there was a reactor positioned in the center of the upper level with an antenna extending to the top surrounded by three gravity amplifiers. These connected to gravity emitters on the lower level that can rotate 180 degrees to output a gravity beam or anti-gravity wave. And then the craft would travel belly first into this distortion field. So said that when he joined the program, he was presented with briefing documents that outlined the historical involvement of Earth for the past 10,000 years with these extraterrestrial beings that were described as grey aliens from a planet orbiting the twin binary star system of Zeta Reticuli. Further to this, when describing the seats of this particular craft, he said that they were child size and had seen alien cadavers of corresponding sizes. So far, we've established that they're some kind of, you know, biological robot that's traveling here in a highly sophisticated liquid metal anti-gravity spaceship across space and time. And then when they get here, what do they do? I guess the best way to examine this is to look at the reasons why and the stories behind how they became part of you know, the UFO alien lexicon. And of course, that particular case is the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. It was just an ordinary day in America. Betty, a social worker, and Barney, a US postal employee, were driving home after their honeymoon in Niagara Falls. A trip, as their niece Kathleen explains, they would never forget. Betty and Barney had a wonderful time in Niagara Falls. They spent the following afternoon in Montreal. They thought about spending the night downtown, but they heard that there was a hurricane whirling up the coast and they wanted to 
drive through the night if they could. I was 13 years old and I had arrived home from school in the afternoon. My mother was on the phone with my Aunt Betty and I heard my mother's side of the conversation. When my mother hung up the phone, uh, she told me that Betty and Barney had seen a flying saucer up close the night before. They were concerned that they might have been contaminated. I was in shock. I thought this was very, very strange. Hello, which one have I got on the line or have I got your phone? You have a phone box. Oh, how wonderful. Hello, that's you, Barney. Yes, that's correct. And Betty, are you there? Yes, I'm here. This is a 1966 radio interview with Betty and Barney in their own words. Now, as I understand it, we have to go back to 1961 to start this, uh, this whole incident, don't we? Yes, that's right. September 19th, 1961. The night that changed their lives forever. When we, traveling south on Route 3, arrived in an area called Lancaster, New Hampshire, Betty called my attention to uh, an object called a star that she had been watching. As I was watching, this star seemed to be getting larger and brighter. Mm -hmm. And we, as we rode along, I kept watching it, and then all of a sudden, I noticed that it had started to move. And we decided to stop, get out of the couch, and take a look at it. I told her that it was probably a satellite. Nothing to get alarmed about. Betty had never seen a satellite before. She knew that her father was very interested in satellites, and so Betty wondered, could this be a satellite? But then she thought, no, it's not behaving like a satellite. She then passed the binoculars to me and said, well, you must really look at this satellite because it's not uh, behaving as we would expect a satellite to behave like. It's clear at this point this was not a satellite. It does a circle. It seems to fly away to the west and then come back directly towards them. Barney is coming up with the other explanations. Maybe it's a passenger jet. Maybe it's a military helicopter. He's got all these explanations because that's how he thinks. And surprisingly, this, what I thought was a satellite, began coming in my direction at a very rapid rate of speed. Well, this caused me to become quite alarmed. And I told my wife, well, apparently it is not a satellite. It must be a passenger plane. And they obviously are looking at us. And I felt uncomfortable to see this, what I thought was a plane, come in our direction. So I returned to the car, and so did she. And we drove down the highway. Privately, he knew that this was unusual, but he said to Betty, oh, it's just a Piper Cub or a commercial airliner. 
don't even think about that. And let's get home. But then, as they continue driving south, Betty notices the aircraft appears to be stalking them. Betty said to Barney, it's coming closer, Barney. As they looked at it, it flew in a zigzag pattern, and then it appeared to bounce back and forth in the sky like a ping pong ball. Barney starts to panic. Well, from this point, I was getting quite frightened because of this. And I thought it must have been military pilots. They could obviously see us on the ground with the, the lights of the car on. I thought they were playing a game with us out there. Up until now, the sighting had been at, at quite a distance. But now that they've driven down the road several miles, and they look up, and it's still there, fear starts to settle in. It knows that we're here. They're thinking, this has a particular interest in us. There's no other cars on the highway. And this light is getting brighter, and it's getting closer. They followed us for approximately 30 miles. And then in an area called Indian Head, it left the top of the mountain, came out over the highway, and stopped midair on the highway right in front of us. That short clip was from Discovery Plus, and I will link all of the details to that video in tonight's show notes. So the silent craft hovered about 100 feet above the Hill's car, filled up the entire view of their windshield. Barney Hill said that it reminded him of a pancake, which is interesting when you think about the fact that Bob Lazar says that these craft move belly first. You know, when you think of a flying saucer and the shape that it is, you know, I've never really like thought of it kind of flying vertically and not horizontally, but you know, maybe it does. Barney stepped away from the vehicle and using binoculars claimed to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of the craft's windows. He said that as they were watching, all but one of the figures moved to what appeared to be a panel in the rear wall the whole way that encircled the front portion of the aircraft. The one entity that continued to look at Barney communicated him a message telepathically saying, stay where you are and keep looking. He said that a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft and it silently approached to within 90 meters away from where he was. So it was at this point in the game that he was just like, they're going to fucking get us. They're going to capture us. I don't think he would have swore, but you know, that was a bit of artistic license. So <laughs> he was running back to the car and drove away as fast as he could, telling Betty to keep looking for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up, and almost immediately they heard rhythmic series of beepings and buzzings that they said appeared to bounce off the trunk of their vehicle, that the car vibrated and a tingling sensation passed through them. At that point, they said they felt an altered state of consciousness that left their minds feeling dulled. Without knowing how much time had passed, a second series of beeps and buzzings returned the couple to full consciousness, but they'd found that they had travelled nearly 35 miles south, but only had vague, spotty memories of that section of the road. They recalled making a sudden, sharp, unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the middle of the road. 
They arrived to their home around dawn and kind of confided in each other that they had some odd sensations and impulses that they couldn't really explain. Betty insisted that they kept their luggage near the back door rather than the main part of the house. Their watches had stopped working and Barney said that the leather strap on his binoculars were torn, though he couldn't remember tearing them. The dress shoes had scrapes on the toes and he said that he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. On September 21, Betty telephoned the Peace Air Force Base to report her UFO encounter, but for fear of being labelled eccentric, she withheld some of the details. On September 22nd, Major Paul W. Henderson gave them a phone call to a more detailed interview. In Henderson's report, dated September 26, he determined that the Hills had misidentified the planet Jupiter. Eventually, though, that report was forwarded to Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project that I'm sure I will do an episode on in the very near future. Within days of the encounter, Betty had gone to the library and had decided to hire a book on UFOs that was written by retired Marine Corps Major Donald E. Kehoe. And he just happened to be as well the head of NICAP, which was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. She wrote a letter to him and included the details about the humanoid figures that Barney observed through his binoculars. On October 21st, 1961, they recorded a six-hour interview relating all they could remember about the UFO encounter with Walter N. Webb, a Boston-based astronomer and a member of NICAP. A little while after the UFO encounter happened, Betty started having crazy wild dreams. Dreams occurred for five successive nights, but then after that, they never returned. They occupied her thoughts during the day, and when she mentioned them to Barney, he was sympathetic, but he wasn't too concerned, so the matter was dropped and she didn't mention them again. It was from these dreams that it became clear that perhaps Betty and Barney Hill hadn't just seen entities in a UFO, but had actually been abducted and taken aboard the UFO itself. In one of the dreams, she remembered that she was being forced to walk by two small men through the forest and that she could see Barney behind her, but then when she called out to him, he seemed to be either in a trance or sleepwalking. She said that the men who were walking them through the forest were between five feet to five feet four inches tall and they wore matching blue uniforms. She said that they appeared nearly human and had black hair with dark eyes, prominent noses and bluish lips and that their skin was a greyish colour. She said that they then walked up to the ramp and into the dish-shaped object that had a metallic appearance. Once they were on board the ship, they were separated. Apparently, she objected, and somebody that she called the leader told her that if they were to examine her and Barney in the same room or at the same time, it would take a lot longer to conduct the exams. She was taken into a room, and this other gentleman came in. Gentleman. This other alien. I mean, came in and said that he would be the one doing the examination. Though the leader and the examiner spoke English to her, she said that the examiner's, like, the way that he was speaking English was kind of hard to understand, that she didn't really understand what he was trying to say. He then told her that the reason for the test was to determine the differences between humans and the occupants of the craft. She was sat on a chair and a bright light was shone on her. He then cut off a lock of her hair. He examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat and hands. Took clippings of her fingernails. Looked at her legs and feet and then used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. Tested her nervous system and then 
Most horrifying of all, he thrust a needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain. Upon realizing this, the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. Once the examination was over, Betty engaged with a conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with strange rows of symbols on it, and the leader said that she could take it home with her. She also asked him where they came from, and he pulled down an instructional map that was dotted with stars. When they were taking the hills back to their car, a disagreement broke out amongst the entities of the spaceship and the leader told her that she couldn't take the book with her anymore as the other people had decided that they didn't even want her to remember the encounter. She told them that no matter what they tried to do to her memory, she would be determined to recall the events one day. After Barney and her were taken to the car, the leader suggested that they wait and watch for the ship to leave. They did so and then they resumed their drive. That's when they realized that they were 38 kilometers away from where they thought that they were. So Barney was like, nah, don't remember a thing. And he even said that himself, that he felt like there was some kind of mental block stopping him from remembering because it was like really fucking traumatic for him. And like further on down the line, the heels decided to undergo hypnosis And that's when Barney kind of disclosed that he had also been examined physically. And he said that he remembers being taken onto the shape, the disc-shaped craft, that they were separated. And then he was told to lay down on exam table. And his narrative of the exam was fragmented because he kept his eyes closed for most of it and was terrified. He said that a cup light device was placed over his genitals, that he didn't experience an orgasm, but he thought that sperm, a sperm sample had been taken. That they also scraped his skin and peered in his eyes and in his mouth and a tube or cylinder was inserted into his anus and quickly removed. He said that he felt like someone was feeling his spine and seemed to be counting his vertebra. One of the interesting parts of this story is that after her hypnotic regression, the hypnotist suggested that she could sketch a copy of the star map that she saw. And although she said that the map had many stars, she only drew the ones that stood out distinctly in her memory. Her map consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. In 1966, an author called John G. Fuller wrote a book called The Interrupted Journey, which detailed the Betty and Barney Hill case. The book included a copy of Betty's sketch of the star map. Intrigued by this, a woman called Marjorie Fish, who had read the book, and was fascinated by the star map, wondered if it might be deciphered to determine which star system the UFO came from. Assuming that one of the 15 stars may have been the Earth's sun, she constructed a three-dimensional model of nearby sunlight structures using thread and beads. She based the stellar differences on a star catalogue that was available to her at the time. Studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the hill map was from the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli, which brings us back to the grey aliens. I should mention though that um, Fisher's interpretation of the star map obviously drew great criticism, most notably by people like Carl Sagan. <laughs> Ultimately, with advances in science in the 1990s, Fish herself rejected her own hypothesis in a public statement. So you're probably sitting there thinking, wow, this is a fantastical story, but why would they be doing this? And how would it be allowed? Like, surely the government would know, someone would know, if there are UFOs out there that are abducting American citizens. And maybe they did. It depends on who you talk to and what you believe, because there is a theory 
that on February 20, 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower interrupted a vacation in Palm Springs to make a secret nocturnal trip to an Air Force base to meet with two extraterrestrial beings. Or he might have just gone to the dentist. Or he could have died of a heart attack. Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so this is the story, according to Michael Sala. On February 20, 1954, the Associated Press reported this. President Eisenhower died tonight of a heart attack in Palm Springs. Two minutes later, however, the AP retracted that bulletin and reported that Ike was still alive. I feel like you can't fuck something like that up. Like the president's dead. That's pretty, that's a big one. That's a big one to you know, lose in translation. So even the kind of official storyline doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, to me, it doesn't anyway. So this is how it goes. He was in Palm Springs on February 20. After he had dinner that night, he made an unscheduled departure from the smoking tree ranch where he was staying. And the next morning, he attended a church service in Los Angeles. Also that morning that he attended the church service, a spokesman announced to the press that Ike had visited a dentist the previous night because he had chipped a tooth while eating a chicken wing at dinner. And that was meant to explain the way why he made his unexpected departure from the smoking tree ranch. Michael Sala doesn't believe this story. He believes that the dentist trip is a cover up and that in fact, Ike Eisenhower went to Edwards Air Force Base where he met with two ETs with white hair, pale blue eyes and colourless lips. Don't worry, I'm planning on doing an episode on those later. These guys are colloquially known the Nordics and in UFO circles, we come to kind of recognise them as looking very Scandinavian looking. They came here on a flying saucer. They said, we want to speak to your leader. They went in and spoke to Eisenhower and were like, hey, we are going to give you some technology and some spiritual wisdom, but you have to like promise us to get rid of the nuclear weapons. Concern with the humans having nuclear weapons was because apparently when we were setting off nuclear bombs and testing weapons and all that jazz, it affects time and space and impacts other extraterrestrial races on other planets and perhaps dimensions that we can't even see. So Eisenhower was apparently like, negative. We're not giving up the weapons. Sorry. Thanks, but no thanks. And then what allegedly happened was sometime later in 1954, he managed to reach a deal with another race of extraterrestrials, extraterrestrials called the Greys. And apparently the deal that they managed to broker was the Greys came to them and said, if you allow us to capture earthling cattle and humans for medical experiments, provided that we return the humans safely, we can give you some cool shit. I feel like the best part of this conspiracy, though, is that so much hinges on President's upper left central incisor. So the U.S. Surgeon General's records on Ike's medical and dental history was open to researchers in 1991. And it is reported that on the fateful night of February 1954, that Ike chipped the porcelain cap of his upper left central incisor, and it was repaired by a Dr. Francis A. Purcell. However... 
A lack of dental records from Purcell's office has helped fuel belief in this UFO encounter. It is worth mentioning, however, that the president did have well-documented difficulties with his tooth, which obviously needs to be a matter of public record considering that the alternative to him having dental surgery was he was negotiating nuclear peace deals with extraterrestrial beings by himself. My favourite thing about this is that that doesn't even scratch the surface of how wacky some of these ideas can be about this this period of time in history. And I'm really looking forward to being able to unpack it after we get like a baseline level of, you know, the grey aliens and the other kind of major players in this saga. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, we've got to think, you know, this has all happened post-World War II, fairly modern If this was a real phenomena, if these entities did exist, surely there would be examples of this in history. And I guess there is and there isn't is probably the best way to answer that because you have to use a lot of artistic license to get around thinking that the grades were referenced earlier than the 1960s. So according to Wikipedia, the first attested mention of the archetypal great alien was in a book called Meta, A Tale of the Future by Kenneth Follingsby in 1891. I haven't read the book myself, but it says that the narrator encountered a small grey-skinned alien with a balloon-shaped head. And you know what? Like, to be honest, that sounds like a guy, doesn't it? In 1893, H.G. Wells presented a description of humanity's future appearance in the article A Man of the Year Million, describing humans having no mouths, nose or hair with large heads. Something that makes me pause for thought, though, is that as early as 1917, Alastair Crowley was describing meetings with this entity called Lamb that had a similar appearance to a modern grey and he'd even drawn it. And to be honest, it looks like a grey alien, except for its eyes are a lot smaller. But when you actually study the drawing that Crowley drew, it it has these kind of like strange eyebrow structure things which like if you almost look beyond the picture, you can kind of see how instead of the kind of slit-like eyes that Lamb has, it should almost have these more almond-shaped larger eyes, I think. So he said that he could contact this entity through the process that he called the Alamantra workings, that he said allowed humans to contact beings from outer space and across dimensions. So here we are, though, in 2022, and interestingly, it appears that alien abductions are down. And of course, you know, there is no, (laughs) well, I guess there probably is. There probably is like a national body that keeps track of these things. But I think what we find is that there was huge amounts of abduction experiences through, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s. But after that period of time, like from the 2000s onwards, it's kind of died down, not been, you know, the way that it was previously. And, you know, could that actually be attributed to the fact that the Granada Treaty was over, that the agreed period of time that the great aliens were allowed to conduct their kind of research and experiments on humans has come to a grinding halt. And that's the reason why now it seems that the encounters that people are having are more along the lines of 
you know, channeling messages through dreams, all that kind of stuff, which interestingly is the kind of communication that we saw in the early days of like contactees and that kind of mystical, magical um, type of interaction with extraterrestrials before we did have that dark turn and see the abduction phenomena come to a fore. If you're listening to this right now and you are an experiencer, I'd love to hear from you right now if you feel comfortable like contacting me and telling me about what's what's going on with you now, especially if it's something like you've, you've had lifelong abductions, um, especially if you are in that age where you are maybe in your 60s or 70s. Like, have you noticed a difference? Have you noticed a change in your interactions with these creatures from that period of time till now like that would be really interesting to go into like if people are able to differentiate a period of time when things changed when their experiences changed and you know being able to like collect that kind of information I'm sure that someone is like surely someone like like MUFON or something must be collecting that information but I, I really think it would be interesting to speak to people who are in their 60s and 70s about what their experiences were like when they were younger as opposed to how their experiences are now. And just seeing if, you know, you can make any kind of correlation or if there's any kind of similarities in the timelines that these people are experiencing, that would be really interesting to me. I'm so excited, guys, because we haven't even scratched the surface and I haven't even mentioned Whitley Strebler or Travis Walton or anything like that. So as you can tell, we just have like such a huge plethora of information and things to go through. And I'm really excited to be sharing this project with you. All right, guys, so I reckon that this is going to be about it for me tonight. Um, If you've made it all the way through and you've listened to the entire thing, then you're the real star of the show. I hope you found this entertaining. And as always, I really appreciate any and all of your feedback. Um, Let me know what you think. Do you like this? Do you think it could be better? Have you got any ideas that you think I could integrate that would make it more enjoyable for you? Yeah, I'm open to suggestions and I love getting emails from you guys and listening to your stories as well. So if if you did feel like you want to drop me a line, it's A's for Alien Podcast at gmail.com or you can leave me a message on my Instagram or on my YouTube. I'm most active on my Instagram. So um, hit me up over there if you like. And what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So as well, you might notice that I'm going to be trying to keep this channel particularly more alien focused for the future. And as a result of that, I have decided to make another channel, which is called Keeping It Supernatural Podcast, which is just as the title explains that that is the part where I will be uploading other little dalliances of my mind. So if you want to hear my perspective on cryptids and ghosts and hauntings and all that kind of stuff then that's the place to to catch me over there so um i don't know if anything's going to be uploaded yet you can follow me on my instagram that keeping it supernatural podcast to for updates because um i'm probably going to upload this before i upload anything on there so but that's just something to keep an eye out for and yeah thank you so much 
for all your loyalty and I'm really proud of the community that we have here. So if you're brand new and you're listening to this, welcome. And I can't wait to hear perspective on all the weird and wonderful wacky things that we talk about and explore here in this safe space. All right. Good night. Bye.